Hello and welcome, partners, to Jaffaville, where, of course, it's all seasonal, because it's seasonal in Jaffaville all the time, especially this time of year. John and myself, Gary, is Mr. Tilt. Hello! It being seasonal, if you do a Christmas special, you want to do something fairly solid, dependable, warm. You can even get away with going through the motions a little bit. You don't want to be doing something that's kind of vague and experimental and you're not entirely sure what conclusions you're going to reach. Whoops. Now this podcast is brought to you in association with Amazon Prime Video. You haven't paid us anything (laughs) for this. This isn't an advert. It's just that, let me put this into a little bit of context. You and I were big fans of the small screen and we'd noticed recently because we'd been doing a lot of channel hopping around the globe, we'd noticed that certainly in the UK, US, Canada and Europe, television tends to look the same wherever you go in terms of presentation techniques, in terms of styles of of program making, because I know that you like, for example, the big free hour German entertainment variety slash quiz shows that they have on a Saturday night, that kind of thing. Recently, we'd noticed that the production techniques are just starting to become identical across all of these different nations. And it's only really when you start looking at the the dial for, say, India or Pakistan, for example, I would say even perhaps like Scandinavia and what have you, it all tends to look very much bland, I think is the best way that I can put it. As far as, you know, when you're channel hopping, it's like, which country am I in? Well, I don't really know. It wasn't like that back in the day. If you had like a satellite dish in the early 90s, you could get like German TV. German TV looked a little bit different to British TV. And Australian TV looked a little bit different to British TV, even though it still used PAL. And American TV looked different because it used NTSC, like in Soap or Benson or something like that. But its grammar was different as well. In some ways, I guess you could say its characterization was driven differently. So this got us thinking about where do you go to find things which are a little bit different? And we'd noticed that, for example, over on the other place, the sitcom club, when we're talking about Heidi High we had started to spot some videos on YouTube of Amdram productions of Heidi High. There was an instance quite a few years ago now, in the early days of the sitcom club, when we were talking about dinner ladies. And I found a photograph of dinner ladies in which all but one of the cast were different. But because one person in the cast was the same... It just threw me. I was like, what am I looking at here? What, what, what's, what's happened? Was there, was there another series I didn't know anything about? And it turned out that it was, again, it was an Amdram production. My memory of that, though, is it was used as a thumbnail on Hulu. Yeah, that, that can be a cast in itself in the future. Well, I kind of want to talk about widening gulfs. Everything kind of looks the same. First world television. It all hits the same beats. It's hard to tell just by looking where it's from, even down to small areas. Even if you cut it down into subdivisions, Middle Europe, Gallic, Scandinavian, you can't really tell by looking anymore. And also, of course, we have the streaming services. They're making original productions and network television in the UK is trying to look like those things. I mean, the good place that we talk about in the UK, you have to watch it on Netflix. I watch it the day after on Hulu, but it's an NBC production. But that dividing line between television, streaming, it's all content now. On the other hand, there's still a weird kind of Wild West feel 
about some of this stuff. And on Amazon Prime, you will get films that have the wrong thumbnail, the wrong cast list, the wrong plot description. So you will have, I think I was looking at the 1977 production, BBC production of A Christmas Carol, and it had the right thumbnail. But then when you clicked on it and there was a wallpaper, and that was actually a still from The Man Who Invented Christmas, a recent-ish film about Charles Dickens. So Christopher Plummer is not Scrooge in the 1977 production, but there's a picture of him there anyway. And a few different things. I would click on it and I would get the cast list for a similarly titled production. This is It might not even be a remake. I haven't written all these down, but it's just like you click on something. It's like, here's the cast list of a film that has the same name. And here's a picture of something else. There was a delightful instance in the Radio Times. It would have been about, I suppose, 97, thereabouts. There was a, a TV drama that was very similar to the film Monty, which was out at the time. It was called The Bare Necessities. And the text underneath it in the Radio Times said, Fwoah, get him off, hey, hey, the guys are doing it for the girls tonight in The Bare Necessities. And by some sort of error, the photograph that they used to illustrate it was the lawnmower man. (laughs) I think that's slightly different. It's a little bit rarer, whereas on Amazon Prime, it's not unusual for all the information to be all scrambled up. Democracy. Do you remember that? It used to be popular in the 2000s. Can you hold that thought? Just for two ticks, just to say thank you very much to Boggs for pointing this out. You just mentioned The Good Place. By the time you listen to this podcast, it will already have arrived on there. But if you haven't already seen The Good Place, and for whatever reason you don't have access to the streaming services, The Good Place is now airing in the UK on proper television, specifically E4. It started on 1st to the 13th of December. It's on at 9 o'clock, so I'm sure it'll be on all four or whatever you catch up with programs and so on. But yes, there you go. So if you've never seen The Good Place, then E4 is a place to go to find it. And thank you to Rob for letting us know. Carry on. Democracy. Yeah, we should try it sometime. So, I mean, it's one thing people say about online culture is this idea of democratization. If you have a webcam and a microphone, you can be a YouTube star. But what are YouTube stars doing? They're really just talking about things. Okay, I guess Zoella talks about makeup. This is me trying to think of the name of a YouTube star. I don't really know the name of any major YouTube star that I can be absolutely certain is on the cutting edge because I'm not really interested in these people. But even then, so a while ago, I was thinking, I'm watching just too much commentary on YouTube where the thumbnail is the person has photoshopped themselves pulling a wacky face, in some cases, onto an image of the film. There was something that popped up in my feed the other day of somebody talking about uh, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, and they just photoshopped themselves standing next to Hannah Gadsby like they were part of the promotional poster for the special. I'm not saying that's wrong, but maybe there's too much of it. I'm always on the verge of quitting this. Always on the verge of giving it up because I'm always thinking it's too reactive. We're not creating and there's just too much stuff out there that's, hey, I consume pop culture, I have opinions, and for some reason I'm better at it than you. Here I am, look at me. Can I just point out, by the way, when you say you're always on the verge of quitting, do you mean actually during the show? Because on It's one... happened. Yeah, well, exactly. I was just going to remind you of the goodies. So sometimes it's like, we're just part of the problem. Sometimes I think we're not. I'm very proud of the birth of British television, industrial action, breakfast, te- ones where we actually just gather a bunch of facts and draw lines between them. That's the kind of thing 
we should be doing. But what about creativity? What about I have a camera and I have a microphone and I'm going to create something? That is much more difficult. And I don't think YouTube has really brought us that many examples of that kind of thing. Okay, there's Chad thingy, always looking out for the hacker. My nieces are always watching him on YouTube. I guess there's a kind of puzzle element to that. It, it feels slightly Clive Doigish for some reason. There's a, a couple of American kids and nephews always watch them. They're usually running around with Nerf guns and things like that. And they're obviously very popular on YouTube and what have you. But even then, that feels like, in a way, it's like a sort of toy review video rather than it being like an original Chess's Corner or something like that? Something like that, I don't know. No, I'm talking about Chad Wild Clear, which actually has this idea that there's a hacker trying to destroy YouTube and they're after him and they tend to have to like solve rebuses. It feels a little bit like the 2010s version of those kind of puzzle hunt, treasure hunt things that we sometimes had on TV in the 80s. But we haven't had an entirely new form of sitcom or drama coming up from YouTube. The gulf is still there and it's widening and widening and even then you've got to think maybe some of these youtube stars who are youtube commentary stars they can afford the equipment they can afford publicists there was that fuss about how much zoella's advent calendar cost and it didn't even have 24 days and yet out there there are some examples of this kind of thing and they fascinate me and it would be very easy to turn this into a mst3k Riff tracks, kind of a thing. You familiar with Mystery Science Theatre, Gary? Yes. Please explain your reaction. <laughs> well, I'm all, I'm only familiar with it because it used to be on the Sci-Fi Channel all the time when I had cable at first, and I know that you're a fan of it. It's not my thing. I don't like it. Yeah, I know of it, and I know that there's been like recent attempts to resurrect it, and there's been a split, like in darts. And so there's like a second version that isn't the same and it's like got some of the people in it and all that kind of thing. So sometimes I get the faint feeling that MST3K, as much as I really like MST3K, has maybe had a bit of a bad influence on an entire generation, maybe a generation and a half. The late Xs and the millennials, they're all too easy to snark and take a piece of work and pull it in one end and just produce nothing but snarky commentary at the other end. Mystery Science Theatre, when it's at its best, it's really just bouncing ideas, adding bits of dialogue, noticing stuff. The format is meant to be that the host is suffering through these movies, but that was just Joel Hodgson's original. He said, it has to be involuntary, because otherwise the question is, why don't you just get up and walk away? But it's not necessarily that these movies are bad, and some of the movies are actually quite good. I listened recently to an interview with Bill Corbin. He said some of the movies are good. And I think my view of Mystery Science Theatre started to change a little bit when I saw somebody on the IMDb do a review of a film called Time Chasers. And Time Chasers is goofy and not very high budget, but it's competent and it's kind of fun. And somebody was just savaging this and you could tell it's because they were a misty talking about it as if it was the most offensive piece of cinematic filth they had ever come across. And I thought, you're just showing off. This film is not bad. It's not slick. It's not high-quality product, but it's not a bad film. And I imagine if you actually looked at the resources the filmmakers had, it's probably pretty impressive. 
let me ask you this. Your mystery science fee is a 3,000 and all that. Does that then lead to, initially, you've got those annoying programs that used to get on BBC Free of movies worst continuity errors where you get somebody sitting there saying oh if you look over there you'd notice that there was like three dots and then the next scene there's only two dots that kind of thing and never once did they mention ian lavender's towel changing color and carry on behind which would have been <laughs> worth pointing out well that's kind of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy that's probably made by people who aren't really familiar with mystery science theater they're just aware of somebody's bad snark that's copied on somebody's not quite so good snark that's copied off somebody's good snark. Okay, let me ask you this. What happened in the 90s? Why did snark become not just a thing, but the, in some ways, in some areas, the dominant form? Generation X was being held to a certain standard that actually it couldn't live up to. Getting a job for life at this point, getting a home, all these kind of things that the economy, the changing economy, just wasn't built for. The generations before, Generation X's parents, who had bought a house at 22, the age, not the house number, who had a good job with a good car and could afford nice holidays, I think they looked at their children and said, this is what you should do. And in fact, you should do slightly better than us. We did better than our parents. You should do better than us. But Generation X, for a start, there weren't that many of them. There's a little mini generation between 1977 and 81 the Xennials. they have a slightly different outlook because there was a big slump in birth rates there was a decline and a slump so there's not that many of them to make their presence felt they're being told to have things that they can't really have right you should go to university and get a good degree and then get a good job right but i have to pay for university well I did. Well, you didn't have to pay, though. You grew up in a welfare state. You grew up in the post-war consensus. You've dismantled the post-war consensus and expected superior results. I'm not a particularly perceptive political commentator, so you might be able to poke holes in that, but that's an element of it. So, of course, the 90s give birth to the slacker. I'm not going to get a good job because the job market has become an arena become a gladiatorial contest unemployment's going up the opportunities are getting fewer and fewer so i'm just gonna sit here and uh talk about pop culture because that's all i've got and it was something that occurred to me actually watching one of these films there's a scene in one of these films which is just a bunch of young people talking about dr phil in this case and i think for generation x there's a kind of a <laughs> Do you remember Dogtanian? What was up with that? I'm trying to think of something that has an obvious hole that I can point out. I guess it's just like we're opting out. Okay, The hippies try to opt out completely out of society. We don't even have that luxury. There's not enough of us for anybody to notice. So we're just going to sit here and eat breakfast cereal and watch Thundercats and snark about it. And the millennials, they're similar, but they actually take this stuff to heart. Some of them, as a whole. So their pop culture, it's not just something they hold on to because that's really all we've gotten. To make ourselves feel slightly better about the world, we're going to pretend we're better than the things we love. No, the millennials take this seriously and you'd better be careful what you say about Steven Universe. Actually, you better be careful anyway because I quite like Steven Universe. There's a couple of things I would say back to that. One, as a counter to what you're saying there, because I'm not saying that you're saying this to justify it. I'm stating this, this is an incomplete truth. 
Most truths are incomplete, so I can point to broad trends, but there are always other trends running counter to that. I'm just saying this is one of the things that happened in the 90s, that the slacker and then the millennials came along. There's enough of them that they might rebuild society, but they have a slightly similar frame of reference to the slackers. They, they don't really have high culture anymore. But there's obviously massive counters to that. But I can't encapsulate all of society from January 1st, 1990 to now uh, without getting tired. I'm not saying that it sounds like you're saying this, you understand. But some people might twist it so that it means you're sort of justifying the whole 90s snark business. And all those things you say about you know tuition fees and lack of job opportunities, it's all perfectly valid. But the only thing I would add to that would be unless you had specifically enlisted and unless we're talking about specific times, say the early 90s or 2003, for example, the chances are that that generation didn't have a war that they had to get involved in. They didn't, have, they didn't even have national service. So you could say that probably the generations beforehand who had national service didn't have time to get snarky about popular culture and what have you. But also you'd think that the generations that come after that probably would have been a bit more grateful for that fact. And the fact that they could sit there and be snarky about popular culture, that that's something worth reflecting on. Part of that, but actually in some ways that starts a little bit earlier, despite the existence of the Vietnam War. The late silent generation, the early boomers, had the same sort of problem, and they were kind of opting out of the war, but there was this odd ingratitude. So they come along and see all these older people who are desperate for comfort and conformity, and it's like, you know, everywhere there's lots of piggies. That whole thing of your little boxes... Maybe it's easy to forget just how much into the abyss a couple of generations gazed. And then you wonder why they want little houses and easy listening music on the radio and George Dixon telling them all is well with the world and all coppers are honest. It's not just their complacency. It's not just their reaction. They've looked the possibility of losing all of this in the eye, and some have as well. We talk about sometimes how Europe is still kind of okay with its NAF people, its NAF entertainers. I don't mean NAF as bad, I just, it's quality, NAFness. It really is a thing. It'd be a wonderful thing to take apart and talk about. They're okay with their NAF people. Their NAF people still have jobs because their cities were devastated. We had Coventry, but I mean... Their cities were devastated twice in a short period. You look at all those churned up fields and wrecked buildings in the First World War, and it happened again on mainland Europe. A little bit different for the British. We did have the Blitz, but we never had the enemy just tramping all over our stuff and then afterwards having to rebuild it again. Sounds peculiar. Sounds peculiar that because... The war was in mainland Europe. They're nicer to their NAF. It's not a, a very strong line. It's a very, very thin, tenuous line I'm drawing there. But just that idea of comfort might be a little bit more important to certain people. The other point I was going to make as well is that, obviously, when you were saying that just now about YouTube stars and what have you, it's a bit of a sort of alien concept to 
ourselves. YouTube for ourselves is a place that you go to look at old continuity. And there's lots of it this time of year, especially. I mean, no, I mean, I like movie Bob. I'm always interested in what he has to say. Hey, speaking of reviews, I just recommended it on Twitter today. Uh, Jeremy at Cinema Limbo does this thing called First Takes, and they're great. They're very pithy. I'm always interested in his point of view. He's really clarified some points about Bohemian Rhapsody that I hadn't seen anywhere else before about how people talk about the changes they've made. The screenwriter has form for this. Just changing stuff, not even dramatizing stuff, just changing the facts to fit a mold. And we're quite far in and we still haven't broached the topic this is about. No, the point I was going to make was that even though there's a lot of aspects to culture in 2018, popular culture, that I don't really get because it's not really intended for me in a, in, in a way. I'm in my 40s. But I do actually find for all the infuriating things about modern culture and the fact that every single advertisement is all touchy-feely and it's, it's all sort of John Lewis now and what have you, I prefer it to what we had in the 90s. The 90s was just horrible for that kind of thing. And I would much rather have what we've got now. If I had a we'll talk choice. about it another time, but yes, for all that we go, nothing's as good as it used to be. We've touched the bottom of culture and we're actually come back up from it a bit. 98 to 2003 was a pretty grim time when we're not there anymore. So all of this is coming together in, if you look on Amazon Prime, there are people who've tried to do it themselves, make their own films without... The full set of resources. That's why it would be easy for us to just crack jokes about how terrible they are. They're not. They don't have everything you need for a proper professional looking film, but I can't help cheering them on. And these things have been distributed worldwide through the internet. That's the peculiar thing. There's always been people who, you know, let's get together with our friends and make a film. And we've mentioned in the past Doctor Who fan videos where you can license a particular monster and these things are made not quite at the same level as professional television but not far off but there's a little similarity but to get those things into people's homes was very difficult and there's only a certain number of people who are going to be watching Doctor Who fan videos this they're everywhere now can you just hold that thought for 30 seconds, because I've got a quick public service announcement. On that subject, could anybody possibly point me in the direction of a documentary which almost certainly would have been on Channel 4, and I'm thinking it's going to be around about somewhere between 88 to 91, thereabouts, and it included a section with a guy who was a huge fan of the Free Stooges, and he talked about how himself and his friends effectively made their own Free Stooges films, I think somewhere around the late 1970s. And this documentary included a little clip or two of this. That's all I've got to go on. I don't have any other information about this. I don't even know what the, the overall topic was. It's probably going to be fandom of some description. But if that rings any bells with anybody, could you please message us what that? Jaffa Cakes for Proust and Jaffa's for Proust on Twitter and what have you. And just let me know what program it is because I'd love to see it again. So, carry on. Yeah, so, we, I mean, a while ago when we did um, Virtual Murder, we talked about the adventures of Stephen Brown that you... Where did you find that? Oh, yeah. So I was... This is back in the day of still having analog TV, but it was during the time when yours had preview as well. So about 2005, and I was tuning in someone's TV and noticed that there were six channels on it 
which was unusual. And one of them had some bloke who was sort of dressed a little bit like Tom Baker running around inside a boiler room. And that was it. For years, that was all I had to go on. I had nothing else. And I think the first time that I mentioned that, might have been on cab radio, everybody just immediately replied, oh yeah, Adventures of Stephen Brown. What? And <laughs> yeah, so there you go. And I think, were there not like sort of even higher grade sort of versions? I think there was one series with Sophie Aldred. I think there probably was another one with Elizabeth Sladen. I think there was quite a few of these sort of fan-made Doctor Who spin-off shows that went obviously went straight to video because it wouldn't be really any other distribution platform the distribution platform so Stephen Brown had to go out on this peculiar sixth terrestrial channel that you found but now pow Amazon Prime so what have we found on Amazon Prime Gary well now here's the thing because I know that you're a huge fan of Dickens and specifically A Christmas Carol you like to see as many different adaptations of it as possible if you put Christmas Carol into YouTube you're probably going to find pirated versions of Alistair Sim and George C. Scott and Albert Finney and all sorts of things, probably Ross Kemp as well. And you'll probably also find, like, just, I don't know, stuff that's been made with, like, a single camera and somebody just running around probably playing all the parts or something like that. I mean, just, like, absolute dross. But if you put Christmas Carol into Amazon Prime, you're in a slightly different world because all those professional films are all there but then there's a slightly different classification of film and it's one where it's still got cover that looks like a dvd even though it may or may not be available on dvd sometimes it is and it's got a cast list and it's probably even got an imdb entry and yet there's something about it that isn't quite right and that something basically is the fact that in its own way straight to video has now gone via straight to dvd and in some ways has become now straight to prime and that's why i wanted to talk about it because it's game changing it's game changing the paradigm well it's suddenly putting it the thing sense. is if, if you search for alistair sim and i don't know if it, i don't know if alistair sim's version is available for prime viewers as part of their subscription or if you've got to pay for it to rent it or buy it or whatever but the difference is that if somebody back in the day had had really good distribution for their straight-to-video film, program, whatever it was, it could possibly have been on the shelves at Blockbuster Video. Chances are it probably wouldn't, though. Whereas in this particular environment, if you're searching for anything that anybody's ever heard of with any big-name star, in the customers also viewed, also purchased related titles sort of area, you're also going to get served up stuff like this. And that's the equalizer about this. This is what suddenly creates, I wouldn't go as far as to say a level playing field, but it's still putting things in front of you that otherwise you wouldn't have had put in front of you previously. So we find a version of A Christmas Carol by a man called Anthony D.P. Mann. I think he's Canadian. He's got Colin Baker for his version of A Christmas Carol. Now, he hasn't got Colin Baker playing Scrooge which would be wonderful. He's got Colin Baker playing Charles Dickens, and he introduces it by mentioning how much he loves Canada. Sorry, I'm just thinking uh, of the showbiz 11. Maybe you should have got Tony Selby. <laughs> Tony Selby <laughs> sings about Canada. Anyway, Anthony D.P. Mance made a few different films. He's made a Sherlock Holmes film. He plays Sherlock Holmes. He's made a Phantom of the Opera film with him as the Phantom. He's made a Dracula film with him as Dracula. And why not? So the production values of this, they're... we're doing our rule of three. And each of these three films has something in place, but it doesn't have what the others do. So the production values of this, this is very limited as to its locations. 
Uh, most of it takes place in Scrooge's counting house. He even sleeps there. We've also got an alleyway. There's a snowy forest at one point. And of course, we have Fred's house and Bob Cratchit's house that are probably just different rooms in the same building. What we don't have is a great deal of jumping from location to location to get a real sense of Scrooge's entire life. Fezziwig is missing. I don't think this has been made with particularly expensive equipment. But I'll say this. The cinematography is pretty good for what he's got. Am I correct in thinking that all three of these films that we're talking about, none of them actually are on film? No, I would say none of them are. And there are no sets in this one. They're all locations that they've been recorded in. The acting is roughly of the same standard throughout these, which is effectively am-dram in places. One person will be doing something close to exactly what you need from a performance, but even then you don't necessarily have the experience in direction. This is not like a criticism of any of the directors. It's not easy. I'm not a director, but I have seen it happen in productions is occasionally some person will underact and they will either drag somebody down with them or somebody will overact to compensate for them and the energy just goes off and it's not an easy job if you're not dealing with professionals to get everybody on the same level well you've been working with me on this podcast for years so you know what that's like yeah well that's like shoveling out time after the chimps tea party So what Anthony D.P. Mann has got, I think, is a bit of the composition and a little bit of the lighting. That's what's on his side. He's got shadows. He's got his face. Anthony D.P. Mann's got this great face. Got this sort of hooded eyes. He always looks mildly put out. Real great sort of character. You, you said he looks a little bit Charles Lawton-ish. Yes, he reminded me of Charles Lawton a little bit, yes. The only thing is, is that he appears to be wearing his wig backwards when he's playing Scrooge. It's kind of distracting, but hey, it didn't harm Kenneth Cope. He wore his wig backwards in Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, and he went on to write episodes of The Dustbin Men. Can I just confess something at this stage? I know how easy it is to do, because I was in the school play once, and I don't know what role I was playing because I was, I think it was like a centurion or something I was supposed to be playing, but also in the same performance we were singing, it's a long way to Tipperary. So I'm not quite sure what the text was. I think you were in a production of Doctor Who and the War Games. <laughs> okay, but it did turn out, I didn't realise this at any point during the performance, but it turned out that I had my centurion outfit on back to front. You did that with a kilt as well. I did, yes, I did do that with a kilt. And I've got no excuse for that because I was in my 30s when that happened. Now, it's interesting that Anthony D.P. Mann feels this need to put on all this hair. It makes his Scrooge much younger than most Scrooges, and the narration is meant to mention how he's aged before his time. And when we have a scene that needs a younger Scrooge, we don't see Scrooge's face. In fact, now beginning to wonder, depending what order this was shot, did Scrooge have to be recast? Who knows? Uh, Maybe there's a making of book that we can read one day. It's a musical, and I don't find the songs particularly memorable. Scrooge sings a song to Marley. This is before there's any prospect of Scrooge being visited by spirits. He just sings this song to Marley that just comes across like he's not just missing his friend, he feels widowed almost. He's just talking about how wonderful Marley was and how much he misses him. I think it's off to give Scrooge that depth of feeling so early on. Scrooge's feelings are meant to be under several, several layers of ice. They might be there. But they don't, it's just odd to have him look at a picture of Marley and sing to Marley. There's also bits of peculiar, every line seems to be slightly rewritten. Every fool who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his figgy pudding and buried with a stick of holly through his sentimental heart. 
Oh, there's mention of Scrooge having a stepfather. So there are odd little things like that. I'm interested in how he handles the ghosts. All the ghosts are women. Ghost of Christmas Past looks like Linda McCartney wearing something cast off from Rick Wakeman. Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come speaks. That's just me. That's just one of my personal bugaboos. Christmas Present is, is this very jolly Earth Mother type. So it's broadly successful, but all the really major changes just seem to be in the dialogue. There's nothing in this that I think makes me look at the story in a new way. But it's not the sort of thing that deserves a nasty review. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, he's done it. It's better to do it than just sit back and talk about what you would do. He's got out there. He's done it. He's got a radio version, or at least a talking book audio version, with Sylvester McCoy as Scrooge. How do you feel about Scottish Scrooges, Gary? Sounds a bit far-fetched to me, to be honest. Well, no, if you want to talk about meanness... <laughs> At one point, this was going to be all versions of A Christmas Carol, but one of them we had to pay for. Gary would have had to have paid £4. I would have had to have paid $2, which is about £1.50. And we both went, let's look for something else so we don't have to spend any money. And that, me dears, is how the world works. The Scotsman balks at spending £4. The Yorkshireman balks at spending £1.50. <laughs> I am willing, for the sake of the listeners to Jaffaville, I am willing to sit through a total of about five hours of this but the actual point at which there was any discussion about parting with real money for it that that no so yeah the stuff you want to watch it and make jokes with your friends it's good for that just don't actually turn those jokes into beliefs i don't think any of these people were wasting their time now this guy anthony dp man he's got a website and what have you isn't he? i mean he's, he's yeah sure he's yeah quite, he's quite prolific he's got quite a few entries on his we've watched his sherlock holmes film Again, I find the plots a little bit humdrum. I was interested in his uh, Irish Lestrade. Is that the one where Holmes is stoned, or is that a different one? We'll talk about that one at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we're guaranteeing nobody is going to stop this podcast before it's finished. Yeah, we've got to be hooked now. Do you have anything else to say about this production? So what I'm taking away from this is he's got the cinematography chops. I'm not saying there's anything else wrong there's not one aspect that's just making me put my head in my hands and saying you can't do it just go back to school but that's what stands out for me it's not done with expensive equipment but he does have at least some sense of trying to get a little bit of contrast you know light here shadows here the equipment's only going to get you so far but hey pushing at the equipment to get it to do things it's not really meant to is one of the ways the world progresses this is not by any means unique to this film audio quality quite often is lowest on the chain when it comes to i don't know if it's a amount of resources that they've put into it or just in terms of their own list of priorities but you certainly notice the difference between colin baker being on the set in shot and then colin baker in voiceover sometimes when you've got dialogue and it's all being recorded within the one take in quite a spacious environment then you get quite echoey sound which is quite off-putting but like i say it's nothing unique to this film by any means as a film it's perfectly good i mean it passes the time you're not you're not sitting there thinking when the hell is this gonna end usually the way that i would classify these things even though we're talking about a streaming service and i know that that's obviously the future that's the way things are going i still tend to look at these things through the prism of old-fashioned linear tv and with each one of these films i'm sort of thinking whereabouts on the sky program guide would this be likely to fall now i wouldn't say that any of the films that we're talking about today i'd be surprised to see any of them in 
the 100 to 150 range, which is where you've got basically BBC, ITV and Sky and so on. As you get further and further up or down, depending on your descending preference, that's when you start to get stuff which is a little bit more experimental and perhaps lower budget. And there are channels around about the 200s and what have you, which are just purely outlets. They're like those shops that you see where it's like one month it's a Halloween shop, one month it's a Christmas shop. It's just basically that. It's a a space that you could hire for a few weeks. There are channels on the satellite and cable dial where you can just buy airtime to put out what you want to put out and these kind of films they turn up in places like that or they might turn up in some of the non-premium film channels for example so this one here i'm sort of thinking i could envisage this being the kind of thing that would just sort of turn up maybe on one of those easily converted to all christmas free view movie channels it wouldn't look all that out of place if it suddenly turned up on one of those And I can't always say that about everything that we find on Prime. (laughs) I think the only thing that we would benefit from would be probably like everything else that had larger budgets so we could have a little bit more in terms of more spacious sets or just proper locations. But that's part of my point about the widening gap. Those resources are not available to communities. There aren't any rep theatres anymore. The idea of living in a major city that's just full of theatres isn't really a thing anymore. I was looking at some old pictures of Bradford. I was trying to find a picture of the doorway of a tripe store shut up i have my reasons and just looking and thinking gosh how many theaters there were and how many cinemas there were and how there were lots of places to go from community to the mainstream most people didn't make it i was thinking about farmhouse kitchen the other day about how that was made it's just a studio in kirkstall it's effectively community television but that doesn't really exist. And the community television experiments that are happening, don't, aren't they all owned by a company called Vats now? Local TV just hasn't worked in the UK. And funnily enough, there's been a bit of controversy about report recently into community radio in the UK. It seems that there is an ever-widening gulf between the professional outlets who tend to be looking to streamline their output. And that's, of course, then a big part of why you get so much of the homogenized visuals and audio these days where you can just sort of jump around the dial, but unless it was for that little dog in the corner that's telling you what channel you're watching, you wouldn't necessarily be able to spot it straight away. Whereas back in the day, of course, you could spot the difference between, say, a BBC program and an LWT program because LWT had a look all of its own and things like that. Or you can spot it as a Granada program. But There seems to be a gulf between those professional outlets and also the community-type stations which are doing it with virtually no budget at all. And because they've got no budget at all, they're not really serving the purpose that they were intended to. And what you really need is some sort of middle ground where you've got something that's larger than half a dozen people in one office, but Hmm. also isn't part of some sort of huge corporation which is just constantly trying to streamline all of its output. How about 16 different television companies dotted about the UK so that even the border region has a chat show? Are you proposing to make a version of A Christmas Carol which is principally (laughs) based around reforms to the Broadcasting Act circa 1990? Yeah, well, poor... Christmas yet to come. This is what's on the BBC on Christmas Day. It's the same as what was on last year and the year before that, except no Doctor Who. Well, we had a guy like that. He was called James Gatward. 
head of TVS, who famously ran newspaper advertisements saying this is what television is going to look like if it's completely deregulated. And all the other ITV bosses say, don't be ridiculous, we would never allow that kind of thing on the screen. Yeah, that's right though, wasn't he? Mr. Scrooge to see you. That was the one we watched. To see you, Mr. Scrooge. (laughs) (laughs) It was a sequel to A Christmas Carol. And what this one had was sets. Yeah, this is probably the most professional looking of all three of them. There's a bit of money behind this, clearly. Well, this had the sets, but it didn't have the photography. It didn't have the photography, but there wasn't anything in terms of shot composition or I anything I just didn't like realise why Anthony D.P. Men's middle initials are D.P. Listeners, I don't know where he's going with that, but it could be filthy. D.P. So. Director of Photography. Ah, I get it. Oh, thank God for that. Okay, so first of all, if Mr. Scrooge to see you was a British film, it would never have been called that unless it was a few years ago and Brucey himself was actually the star of the film. But there was nothing in this in terms of shot composition or audio or anything like that which was making me sort of flinch. So, yes, it's still video rather than film, but otherwise, yeah, there's definitely money behind this. It's still an Amdram, so to speak, production. So you know how the UK doesn't have diners quite the same way? You know, there's cheap places and then there's restaurants and there's nothing really quite in between. Diners is like having little chefs in the high street. There's another medium element in American society. It's basically Christians. If you have some products that will appeal to a Christian audience, you can get a hell of a lot further in the US. And so there are kind of little industries built around making stuff that appeals to kind of mainstream Protestant beliefs. You know, as long as you mention Jesus a lot and nothing that he actually said. <laughs> that sounds like I'm getting on uh, Mr. Scrooge's kiss. But this has the feeling of some sort of church funding behind it because there are quite a few mentions of Jesus and God that stick out. It's a Christmas story. You should really be able to slip the Jesus in quite elegantly. It doesn't really happen. And of course, there's one bit where uh, Scrooge is talking to uh, Vicar. Uh, I don't know. Whatever they have. The pastor says, this place reminds me of the one who never changes, the one who's always with us. And Scrooge goes, God! I just wanted the pastor just to slap his foot. Yes, of course! God! I think I was talking about Barbara Papa. (laughs) (sighs) You spoiled it now. Making a nice little elegant illusion. So I'm thinking that's why this has the resources it does. But it's shot in a really flat way. <laughs> so you can tell the sets are sets. Some is some of these are sets, some of these are locations, and you can tell which is which. Well really I'm just thinking is merely the cafe is a set. We're not gonna go through the plot too much. It's actually a fairly average Christmas feel-good movie. And there's a mortgage on a cafe, Scrooge ends up travelling to the twenty-first century and turns up in a cafe diner type place and acts like every british person in every american tv show right now Ooh, look ketchup dispensers oh i don't know what i want with. damn it who's that guy in kimmy schmidt and he's also in great news i'm trying to popularize the phrase lord bumbershoot as kind of the english slash british version of uncle tom or Dio taco selling us out just coming along going oh i'm quite hugh grant i'm a little bit befuddled and i come from frothington under the pimple the guy playing Scrooge has presence. Got a bit of a Derek Jacobi look. Everybody looks like somebody in all three of these. Can I just, can I just stop me there? Jacoby. We've had this discussion. I'm fairly sure it's Jacobi. 
So anyway, Scrooge turns up in the 21st century and he meets another heartless businessman. You could actually take Scrooge out of this. And yeah, the plot would fall to pieces. But the types, the characters, there's the nice, wholesome girl who runs the cafe. She's got her slightly stereotypical, talkative Latina friend. There's a heartless businessman. And it all works out in the end, but it doesn't actually work out in the way it looks like it's leading. Maybe if I'd been paying more attention, that would have come less of a surprise. But it does have that faint hallmark holiday movie feeling. But hey, it's the new semi-pros, the new amateurs that we're talking about. So you could never mistake it for that. And you remember one time I was talking about television picture syndrome, which... I'm not sure how widespread it is. I, I couldn't really, I could only think of one specific instance of it, but that whole thing that if you're watching something that's meant for standard definition television and there's a painting, that if you get close up of the painting, there are a couple of paintings in this that are plot relevant that don't look like they were painted 150 years ago. Okay, I'm going to say something outrageous and I actually feel quite bad that I'm going to say this and I'm going to go off and give myself a cold shower immediately afterwards. I'm only saying this because I know that this is the current trend. I'm not advocating this, okay? But if you want to call a quit to this podcast series immediately after I've said this, then I will understand. I could actually picture, when I was saying before about where I see all these films falling on the satellite dial, I could see this on Channel 5 one weekday afternoon when they're always showing Christmas films. And all it would need to do that would be taking about half an hour out of it because it's two hours so it's, it's a bit too long so take about half an hour out of it there's bits and pieces that could go and then put it through a filter so that it doesn't look like video but it looks like phony film well we were watching through streaming it wasn't like we watched it interlaced we don't know if that's how it was processed uh, but it wasn't lit for that process yeah so the church that scrooge goes to there's a sign outside that says faith alone grace alone scripture alone which is a belief that i think runs counter to the entire message of a christmas carol which is works you got to do the works you got to do good things for people it's not just enough to say i'm a christian because i believe in the bible and that means i don't have to do anything nice to anybody it is very popular in the u.s so they had a bit more money on sets and locations and anthony dp men he had the photography, the vision, and I still haven't looked up who his DP is. Christmas Curfew, also known as The Grounded. Do you know what this had? This had a more solid feel for the mechanics of characterization. I rewatched this after we watched it. I rewatched this without you so I could pay a bit more attention to it. And that was something that came out to me. There were certain places where it's like, there's something here in the writing that's a little less skimming across the surface. Sometimes it kind of confuses the issue and you have things that are dropped in that do not pay off at all. And in fact, you feel like, why is nobody talking about this in the next scene? Initially, there are a few places where it's like we jump from character to character to character. and We can't be entirely sure they know each other. But somebody here has maybe read a book on screenwriting and they haven't learned all the wrong lessons. There's just a few bits here that's like, yes, that's actually, you've got something here that's the difference between an archetype and an actual character. And hey, wouldn't you know it, one of those bits is when they're just sitting around talking about pop culture. But you've got little odd things like, it starts with a bank robbery, 
But then we have a kid who's trick-or-treating at Christmas. And I think that's a nice distinctive little thing, just to give it a little feel of quirkiness. I guess they're going for a few different feels here, and it does kind of confuse things. But there's the whole, this is going to be a bit of a quirky character comedy. It's filmed around Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead here in California. It's not that far away from me, but it's very high up. So it's very snowy, a Big Bear. But it means you do get that sense of small American town. And so having the trick-or-treater who wanders around at Christmas. Okay, so we're going there. And then we have a couple of characters. What's he called? Fearsome Fred Firefly. Fearsome Frankie. Freddy the Firestarter, was it? <laughs> Bring up the IMDb. I can't do it on my laptop. What, you mean this has actually got IMDb entry, this thing? Yes, it's called The Grounded on the IMDb. You might just be able to sense that this was my least favourite of the three films, but I'll come to that. Right, hang on. Okay, here we go. Freddy Firecracker is the guy. That's it, right, yes. And you've got Dugong as well, and the kid who's Spider-Man and then becomes not Spider-Man as Mr. Shorty. Yeah, they've obviously decided somewhere on the line that you can't say Spider-Man. The kid is dressed up as Spider-Man. If this was a multi-million dollar film, what this is trying to be is it's trying to be the Goonies. If you look at the poster for The Grounded, they've made The Grounded look like The Goonies. So they're going for that feeling of a certain kind of quirky, slightly teenage, that odd little era of film that was kind of there to appeal to kids. But what they call the parental bonus is just stuck out. Kids films with swearing. <laughs> Ghostbusters with whatever that ghost was doing to Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Is it the last Starfire? And I remember there was something that we watched at first school as a special treat, and we were all amazed that somebody just let fly with some manner of profanity that we were not expecting. It's going a little bit for that feel, and if this had been made then, or had been made recently as a conscious revival, the kid in the Spider-Man outfit trick-or-treating at Christmas, that would just be a meme. That would be a famous thing. So many people would have that as their avatar. You'd know about it. There'd be posters of just that. Say, hey, remember this bit? Whoever's written this has some idea of a hook. And so, yes, there's Freddy Firecracker and Dugong. Dugong is about 60% of the way of turning into Michael Cera. Freddy Firecracker is some sort of 90s stoner, but it's meant to be the 2010s. And they start talking about how birds have sex. There's this whole thing of... So our main kid characters, the ones who get grounded, there's a brief discussion about how much they hate their stepmother and she was a copy editor at a porn mag. There's one scene where the girl starts talking about the film Papillon from 1973 and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. Okay, she's kind of a cineast. That would be an interesting place, but there's only one scene. There's a scene where a couple of girls are in a cinema discussing an inconvenient truth. They don't believe in global warming. Are we meant to not believe in global warming because they don't? Or are we meant to think, don't believe in global warming? <laughs> Why? Why did they discuss that? That doesn't pay off. There's a lot of things like that in this. And initially, yes, there's this faint feeling. There's always an establishing shot of the main house. Too many establishing shots of the main house. It felt a bit like Tommy Wiseau's The Neighbours, always cutting to an establishing shot of the building. It started to feel weird. There's cutaways to a squirrel in, in the climactic scene. <laughs> There's a gunfight later in this movie, and it keeps cutting away to a picture of a squirrel. 
It reminded me of that monkey special where they keep cutting to a lizard sunning itself on a rock. <laughs> Anytime they spend too much budget, <laughs> boom, that gets cut in. <laughs> but by the end of it, I kind of believed the characters. Trust me. It was the one that it had the least going for it visually. There's some day for night stuff, and it really just looked like somebody put a piece of blue plastic over the lens of the camera. There's no white balancing in this, so even different shots in the same scene look to take place at different times of day. This is my main issue with it. Yeah, in terms of production values, there's a couple of things in there which I really thought, okay, that's just really basic. Color balance is is one of them, and shot composition where you know you've got like a particular style. You don't want to change that repeatedly, you know, as you move from scene to scene and. It was almost as if it wasn't always the same person who was behind the camera for each scene. It was puffy. It was too much in there. There was too much going on. It really needed a good type of editing. I'm sure this has got some sort of name in film speak, so I'm not making much sense. But the rule about how if it doesn't have any relevance to the plot, it shouldn't be in there. Conservation of detail. There you go. Okay, so there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of bits and pieces where you're thinking, am I supposed to be paying close attention to that? Was that actually a clue? Was that a visual? Was that a MacGuffin? Having said that, when we were watching this, I remember saying to yourself, going back to our discussion at the beginning of this cast about how so much of television these days, I can't really comment about film because I'm not a film buff at all. So much of television these days is identikit. It was rather nice to actually watch something that wasn't. And so when you get things like the squirrel, for instance, <laughs> or where the wife says to the husband, oh, your, your hat's needing adjusted and what have you, uh, a crucial point at the end of the film, and nothing comes of it. It's like, this is odd. This is almost like, yeah, they're making you guess. They're making you do the work. Is this bit important? Is that bit important? Is any of it important? Is any of it going to get resolved? I remember I said to you when we were watching it, did we just miss the ending? Because we were watching it, but it was just like suddenly the bank robbers weren't there anymore. Seemingly it got resolved, I think. It did, yes, I watched it. Yeah. But for some reason, underneath this, I could actually see the skeleton of a more conventional film than the other two. And really what was happening is the other two, they're more generic I mean, A Christmas Carol itself has become a generic plot. It's almost become a genre in and of itself rather than a story. Mr. Scrooge to see you, it was like somebody was writing generic Hallmark movie, but without really studying them, it's kind of written off the memories of Hallmark movies. I know we're trying hard not to put people down, but this, maybe it would be different if I'd seen The Goonies. I'm afraid all those famous 80s films that are massive cultural touchstones are kind of alien to me. You'd never seen The Goonies? I've never seen The Goonies. But this, this felt like it was being structured by somebody who had paid more attention to the thing they were imitating. So there were just certain parts that weren't quite so glib. There's a bit about how the father figure likes Dr. Phil and the stepmother likes Dr. Laura. It doesn't pay off as a plot point, but there's a bit later where the kids are just hanging out together and one of them starts doing a Dr. Phil impression. And I just found that kind of worked. It was actually making their friendship a bit believable. It was giving them something to do. You just got the sense of it was nice for them to get away from their parents. And it wasn't the whole thing of they were going to a party. A party gets cancelled because the hostess is pregnant and her parents found out. 
this is one of those early bits where it's like, how adult are we going here? Because it kind of ends like a children's film foundation thing. And we all had a good party and we all won a reward. Yay! Okay, right. This is an odd comparison to make. But that scene you're talking about there when they were shooting the breeze and what have you, it reminded me of something. And if you were to sit here all night and try and guess what it was that I'm thinking of, I don't think you would get it. Do you remember when we watched that BBC children's show with Freddie Paddock Face Davis? Yes. And Samuel Tweet. Yes. And there's a scene in it where himself and I think he's like, is he a security guard or something like that? And they find a, a box. Policeman actually, isn't he? Okay, yeah. They find a box of costumes and then suddenly they just start doing impersonations for two minutes. It's like, hey, who says, oh, I'll get you, bother. And it's just, it really just feels like we're underrunning by two minutes. Just get something in here. That was great, though. I do quite like, um, I think they talk, I don't know. Is it because he's sitting in a pet shop? For some reason, uh, Freddie Parrotface Davis does uh, an impression of. Albert Steptoe, but he says, let me take a ferret home. <laughs> I also like there's a bit where the policeman gets out a bowler hat, plonks it on his head and goes, I fear, parrot fin- <laughs> Fred, he goes, don't do that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to Christmas curfew, a.k.a. The Grounded. Ah, uh, no, hang on a minute, because that's an interesting point you just raised there. I know that the world en masse is having the big die-hard is it a Christmas film debate right now. So the question is, is The Grounded slash Christmas Curfew, is it really a Christmas film? Because if it is, then why is it in some areas called The Grounded? Because that sounds like rebadging, doesn't it? It sounds like they're throwing in a few bells. I'm guessing that for 11 months of the year, it's The Grounded. And we've just seen that period where it's become Christmas Curfew. No, there are just bits where it's like, I can see what you're trying to do here. There's a bit where at first it felt like a mistake where there's a bank robbery at the beginning and the bank robber starts talking about his plans and it just felt uneven. I thought, no, actually, that's a comedy bit that's just not come across quite right. The idea of a bank robber who then starts discussing why he's doing it, that could be turned into something fairly amusing. But the staging and the acting isn't there because the time isn't there. Money can buy time and obviously they haven't had quite enough time to rehearse, to set things up. There's a scene towards the end where raindrops have hit the camera lens and they're still there, and it's so windy that a character's hat blows off and it's obviously nothing to do with the film. There's one bit I'd criticise structurally, which is eating a candy bar is relevant to saving the day. And what's he called? Mr Shorty, the character who dresses as Spider-Man for Halloween, is the one who gets the candy bar to the person, but it's just kind of like on his person. The whole thing is he's been wandering around trying to get... It might well be that it's the candy bar is actually something from a scene with the bank robbers. It should tie together, but it would just be better if Mr. Shorty runs up with his little Halloween bucket with the candy bar in it, pulls the candy bar and gives it to the guy. Or the guy says, I need the candy bar. It sort of kind of pairs off, but it sort of kind of doesn't. But it shows somebody there is thinking about how to tie little bits together. So yes, Spider-Man, throughout, except for one bit, he's referred to as Webman. There's a bit at the beginning where the bank robbers are in a car. They see this kid and it's like, uh, hey, is that Spider-Man? The other robber goes, Webman? <laughs> like, remember, we agreed on this. We're not going to see Spider-Man. When the kid is trick-or-treating right at the beginning and he meets the mother in the household, she calls him Spider-Man, doesn't she? Oh, right, okay. And also the fact that it's snowing and then suddenly there's no snow and then the snow again. So two more things to mention then. Apparently 
in a snowball fight versus gun, snowball wins. That's where we're getting kind of into our Children's Film Foundation thing. Uh, there's also one of the robbers is meant to be Southern. He starts talking about whether Uncle Ben is married to Aunt Jemima, which is problematic. And the Uncle the Bank robber refers to him as Fascist Alfalfa. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> fascist Alfalfa. That will be on t-shirts. Of the three, this is the one story-wise that I think you could remake with millions of dollars. Okay, partially because it's a self-conscious tribute to the pop culture of the past. But yeah, all three versions had something. So what I mean is, are we in just like this little blip where these films turned up and then they're going to go away? You said that the review saying, is there no quality control in Amazon Prime? We say, what is quality? But yeah, is there going to come a point where the door shuts again and Amazon gets rid of these things? Are they going to hang around? Because it's kind of like, we have 85,000 films and we're not going to tell you. 10,000 of them cost $1,000 or less to make. I'm sure these films are more expensive than that, but you get the idea. Or are these guys going to get together? Is somebody with the visual nous of Anthony D.P. Mann going to get together with somebody who has the set resources of Mr. Scrooge to see you and the characterization beats and fundamental plot ideas of Christmas curfew? Are these going to be like the quarter quickies? The quarter quickies, a lot of them were terrible. Not as many as people say, but a lot of them genuinely were terrible. In fact, that scene cutting to a squirrel, there's something like that in One Quarter Quickie that Matthew Sweet shows in his Truly Madly Cheaply thing, where they just cut to some cats while dialogue runs on underneath. Is that associated to montage or is there just like something visually they don't <laughs> boom in shot? So it's like rather than reshoot it, just cut to a picture of a couple of cats. But the Quarter Quickies vastly expanded the talent base in British film. More studios were built and David Lean came from those things. And I'm thinking, in some ways, things like the ITC programs and the Avengers, the filmed series of British television, was partially possible because the quarter quickies had got that much skill out there. Some of those things are directed by old cinema hands. So could this end up becoming a positive thing? People are going to start getting in touch with each other. I saw your film on Amazon Prime, and this was rubbish, and this was rubbish, but this... Yeah, there's something happening here. Now, I made a film and that was rubbish and that was rubbish, but that was actually pretty good. Who knows? Could we get real democratisation? Of course not. No, the bad guys win. That's how life is. Or not. And then maybe we can all stop commentating on each other's stuff and we can actually make things. I'll say this for you, because I did sit through these, and there were times where I was thinking, what in God's name am I doing? the hell am I sitting through this for? But i tell you something. I think actually, the more I think about this, the more I think this is actually something about me rather than the point I'm trying to make. But I was actually interested to sit through these. I haven't been interested to sit and watch any drama on television on a Sunday at nine o'clock. Not even The Bodyguard or something like that, that everybody's going on about. Because I just sort of think it's just going to be so predictable. I just I close my eyes and I can just picture it straight away. Whereas at least with these things, I was sort of intrigued to see them and see what they would be like and how they would turn out. The creator is better than the commentator. There you go. Does that mean we have to self-destruct? No, but we have to acknowledge when our time comes. Yeah. But we're back next week at the Sitcom Club. Yes, it's going to be our annual Sitcom Club Spectacular. And 
it's going to be a sort of selection box this year because we're going to be talking about a few bits and pieces that don't tend to feature on gold at Christmas time. So amongst them are going to be Christmas seasonal special of Selwyn Froggett. We have the Frank Muir fronted Christmas Night with the Stars-esque Funny Side of Christmas that we'll be talking about, which has got all manner of lots of little Christmas specials in it, including the only Christmas special of Open All Hours in there. Hey, we're going to look at an episode of Three's Company again. It's been a while. And we're also going to talk about a certain ITV. No. What? We're going to keep one of them secret. We're going to look at one that really is something of a law point. I've never seen anybody do a redemptive reading of this show. And I'm not sure where the people to do it. That's your hook to come back. We're going to talk about a show that's fairly openly hated in sitcom discussion land. And it was a bit of a chore for us. Hang on a minute. Did we have something that we're supposed to say at the end of this? We had a hook earlier on, didn't we? There's a film of Sherlock Holmes on Amazon Prime. It's also on YouTube. It's just called Sherlock Holmes. It's made by a company called Antflix. It's got similar production values to all of the things we've talked about, and it's very memorable. It's also modern day, but you'll never mistake it for Sherlock. And it's a lark. So it's out there for you to watch. We've done enough talking for today. Watch Sherlock Holmes, made by Antflix, and decide what this means for the future of the new semi-pros. In the meantime... If you want to hear any of our previous shows, you can find them all at podnose.com, where you can also find all manner of other podcasts as well. And if you've got anything for us at all, you can message us on Twitter at The Sitcom Club or Jaffa's for Proust. Just search Jaffa Gates for Proust on Facebook. You'll find us on there as well. So, yes, indeed. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll be back next week with our seasonal sitcom club. In the meantime, from Mr. Tilt and myself, it's goodbye. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas!